Welcome back to the Bear Market Brief Podcast. I'm your host, Darren, and I hope you've been enjoying all of your time indoors. Joining us for this second episode is Chris Miller, Director of the Foreign Policy Research Institute's Eurasia Program. He is also Assistant Professor of International History at the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy at Tufts University. His research examines Russian politics, foreign policy, and economics. His most recent book is Putinomics, Power and Money in Resurgence Russia. All that said, we know and are thankful to Chris for a couple years ago discovering what was at the time an unknown little news brief on Russia's politics and economy. Thanks to Chris, Bear Market Brief was able to grow into the production it is today. As may be wholly unsurprising, Chris and I talked quite a bit about coronavirus and Russia's ability to weather it, but we also talked about some fiscal tools, Russia's relationship with Saudi Arabia and global oil markets, as well as Russia's military-industrial complex. We hope you enjoy. Joining us today is Chris Miller. Hey, Aaron. Thanks for having me on. So to get things started, uh, why don't we quickly talk about your background, your research focuses? Uh, what is interesting to you in the Russia world right now? Well, I've been focusing a lot recently on uh, the Russian defense sector, trying to understand the economics of, of how the defense sector operates. And this kind of came out of uh, just more general research that I've been doing on Russian macroeconomics and sort of the political drivers and the political factors that shape Russian macro, which have been fairly stable, I'd say, for the past 20 years since the Putin coalition was was founded and, and Putin became president, but in some ways are more in flux today than they, they've been since the late 1990s. Yeah, so just to, to plug Chris's book here, Putinomics, uh, could you give us the, the elevator pitch? Uh, what, it, what Putinomics are, how they've changed? Yeah, well, the, the, the book was organized around kind of two basic points. One is to say that despite the title, in fact, there's a, a consensus uh, among the Russian elite about what economic policy in Russia more or less ought to be. So it's, it's actually not just Putin, it's, it's Putin and most senior Russian uh, policymakers. Uh, and, and they've forged over the past two decades a consensus that relies on uh, three different principles. One is uh, focusing on um, a balanced budget and, and pretty orthodox or conservative macroeconomic policy making, relatively low inflation. Uh, two is uh, to focus their social spending on the elderly, especially focusing on keeping pensions relatively high. And that, of course, has begun to change in the past 12 months. Uh, and then three is to, unlike the Soviet period, re rely on the private sector in places where the private sector isn't politically important. So if you're in the supermarket business or the steel business, those sectors are more or less driven by market or economic factors. If you're in something that does matter politically, uh, technology, telecoms, um, and most important of all, energy and finance, politics is the driving factor. And so market factors are relevant, but in fact, at the end of the day, in a lot of those industries, the really key decisions are made by politicians rather than by business people. Well, we're about to see, I guess, given what's going on today, how much longer those non-politically essential sectors really are non-political. But we'll get to that in a little bit. I just want to touch on something you mentioned quickly. Uh, you don't mean to suggest that Putin doesn't control everything in Russia single-handedly and individually. <laughs> Certainly, he's a powerful guy. Um, but, but indeed, there, there, I think it is fair to say there's a sort of consensus among the Russian elite. And if you think of the, the types of people that surround uh, not only Putin, but the types of people who are in powerful positions in Russia, they're generally 
uh, of the age where they lived through the collapse of the Soviet Union. They also lived through the 1998 financial crisis. So they've suffered a bunch of big financial crises earlier on in their life that shaped the way they think. And so uh, it's not the case that Putin needs to tell them how to think, nor is it the case that Putin decides everything. Uh, the, the kind of shared experience of these crises has shaped how an entire generation of Russian leaders looks at economics. Yeah, it would make sense. So speaking of economic crisis, I think that's as good a segue as any to get into the uh, the bread and butter of today's episode, which surprise, surprise is going to be COVID-19 and <laughs> Russia. But it's, I think a very interesting time in Russia, not least because of what was happening before coronavirus made its appearance, what with the constitutional changes. But Russia's economy is at a crossroads, uh, A, because of coronavirus, but at the same time, uh, OPEC plus, the, the kind of infrastructure holding up oil prices worldwide, collapsed. So oil prices are in free fall and there's a global pandemic. So kind of a perfect storm, double whammy. So let's start before we get into you know, Russia's ability to weather a crisis and how the economy is doing. Let's talk about coronavirus and Russia. Uh, last I checked, I think there were about, by today, 3,000 cases. Uh, Putin is more or less in quarantine after meeting with the head of a hospital who was exposed. Um, so where does this leave Russia? How, how bad is this going to break? We know there's there's no question that Russia was behind the curve in in addressing coronavirus, um, despite the Russian government's claim that it was actually ahead of the curve by banning travel from China at a ver very early date, which it did. Um, but for for most of February uh, and into uh, mid to late March, the Russian government's line was that there basically isn't much coronavirus in Russia. Uh, the cases were in the the dozens and then in the low hundreds. And the message was that it's all under control. And I think when you started to dig into uh, regional media, when you started to look at pneumonia um, records in, in Russian hospitals, suddenly it became pretty clear by mid-March that, in fact, it wasn't under control, that the testing that they were doing wasn't picking up uh, the number of cases. And so uh, over the last two weeks, the Russian government has done a 180. Um, it went from we've got it under control to this week, everyone is on enforced lockdown at home. Uh, don't leave your house, kind of as strict as you see in many uh, U.S. states or in many parts of Europe. Um, and I think this is kind of an interesting uh, dilemma for the Russian government to pull off because they they have to go from telling everyone, yep, we've done a great job in this, to, oh, wait, actually, this is a real health crisis, so much so that we're going to force you to stay at home until the virus goes away. Not the easiest uh, PR uh, uh, kind of PR dilemma to, to work through. Yeah, at the same time, so... I've been joking a bunch on Twitter and elsewhere. There's kind of a, a 3.6 Röntgen approach to or the Russian government had uh, joking about uh, the line from the show Chernobyl, where you can't you can't have figures if you're not measuring them. Uh, but at the same time, it, it sounds a little bit uh, in parallel to what's happening in the States to a certain extent. Would you would you agree there? Yeah, you see you see. Trump, uh, you know, it was only a month ago when it, there were 15 cases that will soon go to zero. And now it's, you know, uh, you know his health advisor saying we're going to face 100,000 deaths, if not more. Um, and obviously, these projections are, are projections, so it's hard to know how confident we should be in them. But, but nevertheless, uh, Russia wasn't alone in underestimating uh, the, the effect of COVID. Yeah, no kidding there. Um, so let's talk a little bit about kind of the economic implications here. So... Uh, last I saw, I believe it was Kudrin uh, today or this week, uh, said that kind of the baseline 
average scenario for this year is going to be a contraction for Russia of between three and five percent, uh, getting down in the worst case scenario to to eight percent. Now, Kudrin is you know, not really known to be very uh, rosy eyed when it comes to, <laughs> to growth figures, to say the very least. Uh, but what what does that mean? Can can Russia weather a recession? What does that mean for economic planning for Putin and his team, et cetera? Yeah, I mean, you're definitely right to say that Kudrin has a, a track record of uh, pessimistic economic uh, predictions, which is, is part of a political strategy. If you say it's going to be terrible, then you can force the government to take steps to mitigate it that they might otherwise not take. And, and Kudrin's been playing this game since uh, his earliest days in, in when he came to power with Putin uh, when he was finance minister in the 2000s. But he, he's certainly not wrong to say recession is base case, uh, you know, so long as oil is in the 20s per barrel, that's that's just inevitable. Um, I think the interesting question is what happens not later this year or early next year, but in the, the two, three, four year time frame, because there's no doubt that Russia's got all the money it needs to um, you know, weather a, a couple percentage point um, uh, recession this year, even if next year, the government budget's not gonna be in surplus probably, but it's not going to head towards a debt crisis of the type that it saw in 1998. But the big question is, how much uh, the cost will the Russian government be able to push on the population via a devalued ruble uh, versus will they start feeling the pressure from the population that's sick of already a decade of stagnation and doesn't want to take another year of uh, a year of economic pain. And it's going to be hard to avoid a year of economic pain just given where the oil price is, given the lockdowns effect on Russia's uh, domestically focused economy. But at some point, I think we've got to assume that Russians are going to demand something more from the government and the government's going to find that it can provide that only at great cost and using tools that it's not that comfortable turning to. I thought the most interesting thing of the economic package that Putin uh, announced, I guess it was last week, was that there was an array of spending measures, but also a tax hike on uh, interest from bank deposits, which kind of struck me as extraordinary uh, at a time when the rest of the world governments are spending you know, five, 10 percent of GDP on stimulus bills, Russia's spending a bit, but also raising taxes a bit to compensate, which I think gives you a sort of lens into how Russian policymakers uh, look at living standards. They're there's something that you need to occasionally throw a bone to the masses, but living standards aren't something that the Russian government's ever tried to uh, focus on. And even in the midst of the crisis, they're willing to raise taxes, which which strikes me as as really quite surprising. Yeah, very uh, hawkish, hawkish move, to say the least. Uh, I read earlier that uh, the Russian central bank took the unusual step of defending the ruble. And for those uh, not fully versed in macro policy, basically very short version means the Bank of Russia is buying rubles to keep the value of the ruble in terms of dollars and other currencies higher so it doesn't crash. That creates inflationary risk. Uh, helping to protect households. But let's kind of take a step back first. Let's talk about the ammunition, the policy tools that Russian economic planners have at their disposal to correct the situation, to keep things stable. Uh, that could be reserve funds, et cetera. But can you kind of walk me and the audience through what they could do? Yeah, well, if you look at what um, Russia's neighbors have done, whether it's its neighbors in uh, Asia, like China, neighbors in Europe and the United States, there's vast social spending programs that have been rolled out by uh, most of the world's advanced economies, whether it's individual payments to households, whether it's uh, reductions in consumption taxes, um, you can directly boost household incomes via that mechanism. 
You can also uh, pay for wages of employees who are furloughed or uh, laid off via unemployment insurance schemes. Uh, and Russia has been doing a bit of this, um, but probably not nearly as much as, as ought to be done. On top of this, Russia could, as you mentioned, try to defend the ruble and prevent it from sliding downwards. I don't know if this would be a wise thing to do, but it would be a way of, of bolstering household incomes because uh, part of the household consumption basket is imports that need to be purchased from abroad. And as a result, the value of the ruble directly affects the cost of those imports in ruble terms. Um, so all of these are things that the Russian government could try, could be doing right now if they wanted to. Um, and you'd add to that, I think um, you could also try uh, lowering interest rates and easing monetary policy, which both benefits uh, firms that have to uh, service debt, but also households have uh, far more debt today than they did uh, a couple of years ago. And so for households to lower interest rates would make a difference. Um, obviously, any sort of interest rate cuts come with probably negative effects on the ruble exchange rate. Um, but all of these are tools that you could imagine the Russian government wants to take. They've, they've dipped very tentatively into a couple of them, but when you look at the overall package of what the Russian government is offering uh, on the stimulus front right now, it's really quite small in comparison to uh, many peer countries, especially when you consider that Russia's got a double shock. It's not just the COVID shock, it's also the oil price shock right on top of it. And that's, it's, it's, it's hard, hard to imagine a return to growth uh, this year if it were only one of those, but both of them combined means that uh, it's really gonna be quite painful for the average Russian household. Yeah, no kidding. So let's, I guess there's two questions that come to mind from that. So I want to talk about why Russia hasn't taken, or at least the political leaders haven't taken a more aggressive approach, which I think ties into what you said about the, I guess, culture of elites, you know, being raised through crisis there. Uh, but also, I think it would be, uh, we'd be remiss not to talk about the oil shock here too, because uh, this is, as, as I mentioned before, really a double whammy. It's a, it's a demand shock. Uh, because people are, you know, staying home, they're not going out and buying as much. I mean, then also uh, a supply side shock in terms of uh, this fallout with Saudi Arabia, where Russia and Saudi Arabia had gotten on at least as far as uh, oil prices are concerned, gotten along keeping them up. So could you share a little bit about kind of what happens there and the economic implications for Russia besides bad <laughs> I think in one word, the answer is bad. Um, something around half of Russia's exports are oil and gas products. Um, it's a, a huge portion of GDP. Um, it's, it's crucially important in determining the ruble exchange rate, um, although the, the, the correlation between the two has declined somewhat in recent years. Um, but there's, there's just no way for Russia's economy to grow when uh, oil export revenues are shrinking. Um, so the, the reality is that there's kind of a mechanistic uh, relationship between the price of oil and Russian GDP growth. When oil price goes up, GDP goes up and vice versa. Um, and that's, that's something that Russian policymakers have long known, which is why they've done so much to build up reserve funds when oil prices were high, saving money away for times when the oil price fell. And in the past, that served them quite well. In 2008, during the uh, financial crisis, there was a big slump in oil prices and the Russian government had funds uh, to bail out firms and to support the Russian government budget at that time, 2014-15, another oil price crash uh, that, that vindicated the Russian government's efforts to save up money um, and, and spend it when prices were low. And today, too, the Russian government does have a fair amount of uh, scope to uh, draw on the National Welfare Fund, uh, which is the government's fund and also central bank reserves, potentially, uh, to, um, to support the ruble and to support 
uh, growth in general. But at the end of the day, uh, they've got a lot in reserves. But when you're exporting so much oil and when we've seen such a drastic shift in the price of oil, there's only so much you can do. And so I don't think it's fair at all to blame the Russian government for the fact that uh, there is going to be a recession this year. That's just mechanistically inevitable. Uh, I think what they can be criticized for is how they proportion uh, the costs of the crisis and who pays the bill. And I think the unfortunate reality for most Russian households is that as in 2014, 2015, as in uh, 2008 as well, it's it's households that will be left footing the bill, not the government uh, and not the country's firms. Yeah. And I guess that that certainly uh, presages or, you know, may lead to more risk of populism and its effects down the road. And I guess speaking of populism and unrest and upheaval, I mean, there's a, I guess, a bad habit, I would call it, in the Western press where you may or may not agree. Putin tends to vacillate between being about to be overthrown and global overlord uh, with, with no middle grounds whatsoever. Uh, but at the same time, this is, if not, you know, a risk of being overthrown, a sensitive time for Putin, uh, who is trying or was, at least until coronavirus, reared its ugly head, trying to navigate some pretty sweeping or not sweeping is a big discussion, constitutional changes. So what do you think? Do you think this current crisis really changes the logic? It kind of, you know, as the, as the joke goes on Twitter, I'm young enough to remember when Putin over, over, overhauled the entire government, but that seems like old news now. Does this change his plans for the transition? I'm, I'm a skeptic of the, of the kind of common thesis, the conventional wisdom that that the constitutional change process was all planned out um, because it seems hard for me to explain why it has played out the way it has over the past two and a half months now if you thought it was planned out because it, it just doesn't seem to me like you would have planned it in this manner uh, given the disorganization that that seems to have followed. So first you have the constitutional reform which rejigged the balance of power between the Duma, the prime minister, the president kind of, but actually it seemed like that the legal changes themselves weren't that clear. And at the end of the day, nothing actually substantive really changed in the, the first draft of the constitutional changes. Then you had an announcement of a referendum, but it was rolled back and it wouldn't be a referendum. It would just be a vote that wasn't a referendum, but looks kind of like a referendum. So that kind of seemed to me to be a bit unclear. And then after that, Putin announced he was going to support the, uh, the, um, the zeroing out of term limits, allowing him to run again in 2024, which seems to me like a very dangerous thing to do when you've already had a referendum on the books. Because if you just have a referendum about constitutional changes that no one understands, and if they did understand them, they would realize they didn't mean much anyway. Uh, it's hard to have strong views about that constitutional reform. But suddenly, if you can vote, do you want a president for life or not, de facto, seems like there's a pretty big risk that you get the wrong answer, or you only get the right answer by some pretty serious rigging of uh, the type that would provoke social unrest. And I, I guess I, I was struck by some polling from the Levada Center that's come out of the past couple of days on um, asking Russians, do you support age limits for the president? Uh, and a majority said yes, uh, which is pretty striking to me. And if I were a 67-year-old president who was going to be 71 by the time I'm planning to run again, you know, having a majority of my population support age limits looks like a really uh, uncomfortable place to be. Uh, running a referendum to de facto make me president for life. So I'm actually a skeptic that this was planned out in advance. I, I can't explain why it's been bungled because it 
seems like they had plenty of time to work out a good plan, but it just seems like the things that they plan well, they're able to plan well. Uh, and this doesn't seem to fit the pattern of, of past Kremlin planning. Um, so I, I sense bungling behind this, although I can't explain where the bungling has come from. To be completely, you know, complete supposition here, uh, is it possible Putin himself doesn't know what he wants? Possible, possible. Um, but then the question is, why start this process in the first place? Because the constitution didn't need to be reformed. Um, the fact that the constitution was reformed in such a nonsense manner at first, with a rejigging of responsibilities that ended up rejigging nothing, uh, seems hard to explain. And if you didn't know what you want, I would think that you would just wait another year, kick the can down the road, deal with it later. So there seems to be something that pushed the Kremlin, pushed Putin personally to want to act now, but then they acted before they seemed to really have a clear sense of what they wanted. Or maybe I'm just overestimating their capacity and they just hatched a bad plan and bungled it. But it seems like it's something so important. You make sure your plan made sense before you set it off. Yeah, no kidding. Well, I don't want to delve too deep into Kremlinology, uh, but it is it is so fascinating to talk about. It's so, <laughs> so opaque. It's, it's the, the temptation of all Russianists to, yeah, exactly. to get into. So let's talk, you mentioned at the very beginning, you're doing some research on the military industrial complex in Russia. If you want a tongue twister for non-Russian speakers, everybody say, complex" three times fast. <laughs> so what is your research focusing on and what, what's going on in the sector these days? We're digging into one big question, which is this, you know, the past uh, over half century, the, the world's two dominant military powers have been the US and Russia slash the Soviet Union. Uh, by far. And even today, when you look at actual destructive capacity, uh, which basically means big nuclear weapons, it's the U.S. and Russia that stand out far above um, the, the other powers, far above France, far above Britain, far above China. Uh, but the interesting question to me is if you project out 20 years or 30 years and ask yourself, what are the types of technologies that will be defining military power at that point? And then who will be producing them? Um, it doesn't seem obvious that that Russia will be one of the powers. It could well be, um, but I think it's it's not guaranteed. And and the country that I think many people suspect, and I, I think with some good reason, uh, might be one of those powers is is China. And and when you ask, I think most defense experts to think about some of the technological changes that they think will start feeding into uh, military systems over the next. A uh, decade or two, people look at artificial intelligence, people look at machine learning, people look at nanotechnology and and start thinking about the military ramifications of those. And these are all spheres where, by most metrics, it's the U.S. and China rather than the U.S. and Russia leading the charge. Um, and so I think this presents an interesting dilemma for uh, Russia. It's a, a military dilemma. It's a foreign policy dilemma, but it's also an economic dilemma, because if you want to keep up and if you buy the thesis that the technologies of the 1960s. And today, intercontinental ballistic missiles are the technology of the 1960s. If you think those won't be the key technology of, say, 2050, uh, then you've got to figure out, well, who's going to be producing what those technologies are? And is there a chance that Russia misses a whole revolution in military affairs and as a result can't produce on its own the, the type of technologies that will be determining military power uh, in, in a couple of decades? And so I don't have a clear answer to that question. I'm just in the early stages of digging through um, both Russian technology and, and Russian military procurement uh, thinking right now. But I think that is kind of a crucial question, certainly one that Russians themselves are wrestling with, but also when you think about the political and economic balance 
uh, of the world over the next generation. Yeah, it's a certainly fascinating sector and issue. So what, I guess in broad terms, would stop Russia from keeping up? Was that an institutional? Was that a technological issue? Well, thus far, Russia and the U.S. have had sort of uh, small-scale arms races in the nuclear sphere since the 1960s when intercontinental ballistic missiles were first uh, first basically perfected by the U.S. and Soviets. But there haven't been any game-changing technologies um, that would threaten either country's nuclear deterrent. Um, there were attempts to create them with U.S. missile defense systems, but they were never scalable. Uh, that would really threaten Russia's deterrent uh, in, in, a, in any sort of kind of credible um, way. There's a chance that next generation technologies could um, threaten this type of deterrence. So you can um, ask yourself, you know, how sure are we that intercontinental ballistic missile submarines um, will be able to continue avoiding detection like they're able to now? Now you can be pretty sure that if you've got a submarine sailing uh, around the depths of the oceans, you're adversaries aren't going to be able to find it. And if they find one of yours, they probably can't find all of yours. So you're guaranteed you can get some missiles off. But as as we get better with uh, sorting through data, um, it, I think, becomes plausible that uh, sonar technologies uh, become more capable of targeting submarines. And if that's the case, it seems like the countries that will be best able to, and this is just one example, but uh, use data to better target submarines will be those that are best capable of using data to begin with. And, and I think uh, Russia is probably not at the top of that list. That would probably be China and the United States. So that's something that I think, you know, it's not going to have an effect next year or in 10 years militarily. But when you start projecting over a slightly longer time horizon, um, Russia doesn't have the firms that are innovating in these fields. Um, they, they haven't for some time. Um, they certainly don't have the levels of investment that either the U.S. or China are putting into these fields. And so I think there is a, a risk for Russia that uh, the next generation, the sort of leaps ahead in military technology are in fields where Russia just can't compete. Um, thus far, Russia's just been quite lucky uh, that a field where it's very, it's very good, rocketry, uh, is, has been the dominant military technology of uh, over the past half century. But there's no guarantee that that continues to be the case. And it could be, and it already is slowly beginning the case, that many countries can launch intercontinental ballistic missiles. Even the North Koreans can launch at least a a mediocre version of one. And if, if that becomes more widespread, and if instead the frontier of military technology is in different spheres, in artificial intelligence, for example, uh, if you're not one of the two or three leading powers, you might find yourself a second tier military power much more rapidly than you expect. So last question here, and kind of veering away from this topic, but related, you talk about the ability to keep up with data as a means of in the military in this case, but also as far as governance is concerned, and I know Russia has really emphasized the digital economy as a means for growth. Uh, but just this week, you published an article talking about the far, false premise of the surveillance state. So is data actually all that? What are, what are the limitations here? Well, I think it depends what you're trying to accomplish. So if you're you know, trying to find the best route between your house and the supermarket, Google Maps can find you the best route. And it's going to use all the data that they've accumulated. That There's no doubt about that. I think the same kind of applies to tracking uh, uh, submarines through the depths of the ocean. If you're trying to use data to predict the future of politics, I think there's a lot more reason for skepticism. You see the, the Kremlin betting quite heavily on this right now by importing a fair amount of surveillance tech and a lot of it from China. Um, this to me seems like it's not asking the right question. I, I think back to 
the way that the Soviet Union and its uh, socialist allies in Eastern Europe, like the East German state, tried to gather as much data as possible on all their citizens. The Stasi uh, is said to have had one in 10 East German citizens uh, working for it as an informant. And yet months before East Germany collapsed, they had no clue what was coming because they were collecting lots of data but not asking the right questions about it. And I think that there's a similar risk uh, that Russian leaders face today. They're, they're betting heavily on technology and uh, the, the the surveillance state to bolster their power and to identify threats, but the real threats to them uh, are, are probably not going to be the types of things you can find on surveillance cameras or identify via facial recognition. They're changing trends that you can't see today, but might turn drastically uh, tomorrow. And unless you can think about how to predict those types of trends, predict changes in public opinion, predict changes in elite opinion, which is even harder. Uh, I think you're going to be flying blind politically while you think you're flying with great sensors. And that's even more dangerous than flying blind and knowing that you're flying blind. Uh, so if I were advising the Kremlin, which I, I wouldn't do and I don't do, but if I were, I would say trust less in your facial recognition technologies you're buying the Chinese and, uh, and, and, and don't be overconfident about your capability of predicting the future. I think the, the pithiest remark I've ever heard about public opinion data in Russia and the question, do you approve of Putin? I forgot who this was, so credit to whoever said this, that asking if people approve of Putin is like asking people in a canned tomato store if they like canned tomatoes. That is, is it's just, uh, it's, it is data, but the question is how, is how helpful that data is. What does That's it mean? Actually exactly. All, that's actually all the time we have today. Uh, so, Chris, thank you for joining us so much. Um, and stay tuned for our upcoming episodes. We have a really exciting lineup of guests. So join us next time. Fantastic. Thanks, Aaron. Thanks for joining. As a reminder, you can find BMB Russia and Ukraine at the Twitter handle at Bear Market Brief. BMB is a project of the Foreign Policy Research Institute, a nonpartisan think tank in Philadelphia. For more information about this and other initiatives, be sure to visit www.fpri.org. I'm your host, Aaron, and stay tuned for future episodes.